had uh, joked with some of the pastors between services earlier that Stephen is in trouble. They thought that I was referencing his tardiness to the invitation in the 8 o'clock service. You were not here for that, but I was. And I said, no, that's strike two for today. Strike one is not reminding me that this was family family worship Sunday such that I would not be preaching on the subject of sexual immorality on that day. But we'll take the next passage in line, and here we go, right? No, that's in in jest. It it is uh, the focus of our passage is adultery. That, That is not irrelevant to the family focus of a day like today. The kids that have been before you leading in worship, their well-being, their outcomes in life will be shaped considerably by the stability or the instability of their families. So we have occasion in considering God's Word together this morning to shore up the foundations of our families, shore up the foundations of our hearts, nourishment of God's Word. May the Lord be pleased to grant just that in the time we have together. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 20 and following is our text. If you have found your way there, I'd invite you to join me in standing out of respect and honor the reading of God's Word. Proverbs 6, 20 through 7, 5. The Bible says, My son, keep your father's command. Don't reject your mother's teaching. Always bind them to your heart. Tie them around your neck. You walk here and there, they'll guide you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. When you wake up, they'll talk to you, for a command is a lamp. Teaching is a light, and corrective discipline is the way to life. They'll protect you from an evil woman and the flattering tongue of a stranger. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. For a prostitute's fee is only a loaf of bread, but an adulteress goes after a precious life. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with the one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. People don't despise the thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. Still, if caught, he must pay seven times as much. He must give up all the wealth in his house. The one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. He will get a beating and dishonor, and and his disgrace will never be removed. Jealousy enrages a husband, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not be appeased by anything or persuaded by lavish gifts. My son, obey my words and treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live. Protect my teachings as the pupil of your eye. Tie them to your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your relative. She will keep you from a forbidden woman, stranger with her flattering talk. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word, and may be seated. This section, which is the focus of our time this morning, verses 25 through 35, is bracketed by two smaller passages to parallel one another and serve for us to point to this section as central. There's this literary technique in much of the Old Testament where you can begin and end a specific section of teaching with parallel statements. In other words, you provide something of an introduction, and then at the conclusion of that particular section, you sort of restate 
in slightly different terminology, the introduction, and that marks both the beginning and the end of a particular passage of Scripture. Verses 20 through 24 mark our introduction. Here the Bible says, My son, keep your father's command and don't reject your mother's teaching. Always bind them to your heart. Tie them around your neck. When you walk here or there, they'll guide you. When you lie down, they'll watch over you. When you wake up, they will talk to you. For a command is a lamp, teaching is a light, and corrective discipline is the way to life. They will protect you from an evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a stranger. Later in chapter 7 and verse 1, again, my son, obey my words and treasure my commands. Keep my commands and live. Protect my teachings as the pupil of your eye. Tie them to your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call understanding your relative. She will keep you from a forbidden woman, a stranger, with her flattering talk. You see the similarity between those two passages. Both of which are reflective of other language in the Old Testament. We've noted a few times along the way that Proverbs seems to be Solomon's curriculum for dutifully fulfilling the responsibilities we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me just rehearse that for just a moment. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses instructs the people of Israel that you are to do everything in your power to pass down the baton of faith to your children and your children's children, to remind them of the command of God, stipulations of the covenant into which we have entered with the very God of heaven. We are never to forget what God has done for us. Specific to the people of Israel, we must never forget that we were slaves in Egypt, and yet God has brought us out of that Egyptian bondage. He has liberated us. He has set us on a course that is to end in a land that flows with milk and honey. He has hidden us behind the blood of the Passover lamb that even on the day of judgment, we might be kept. Deuteronomy 6, the Bible says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now listen, don't these words sound familiar? These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand, and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Keep these commands ever before you. In effect, Solomon is saying the same thing in verses 20 through 24, and then again in Proverbs 7, 1 through 5. Proverbs helps us to take what might be broad commandments from God and to press those down in the cracks and crevices of our life, to get the broad principle of God's Word down into the minutia of our life. Proverbs, as much as any book in the Bible, serves as a reminder to us of the keen interest God has in every aspect of our life. Jesus is disinterested in being the Lord over a sliver of your life, over half of your life, three-fourths of your life, even 90% of your life. The interest of our Savior is to Lord over all of our life, and we are best Served, Our happiness is best served. Our success, our joy, our gladness is best served when we are willfully surrendered to the Lordship of Jesus over every part of our life. Now, 
Solomon is going to begin to delve into the matter of adultery. And believe it or not, he's going to hang with the topic of adultery for quite some time. Which would lead one to believe that this is a part of life Solomon himself was convinced is incredibly impactful in the everyday Christian life. There's something that begins to happen in in the section that we're going to be looking at that I just want to note. We're not going to stay here long, but I want to note this as we're beginning to transition toward chapters 7 and 8. Here in chapter 6, there's the beginnings of what will in full force uh, be a transition away from adultery as a singular sin to adultery as a metaphor for all manner of ungodliness. The adulteress becomes the personification of all things evil. Folly, evil, foolishness in general, like the adulteress, seduces her victims into catastrophic decisions with catastrophic outcomes. That's what Solomon is warning against in the chapters which are to come. But he sees here, the Bible sees, similarity between the adulteress and her seductions and evil in general and the way it seduces and entices us to make self-destructive decisions. Be on guard against the adulteress. But in the broader sense, be on guard against all manner of evil and her seduction. The introduction and even the conclusion of our section are an admonition that we would heed the words of our mother and father's counsel. That we would do what we've been instructed to do. Mom and dad, presumably immersed in the wisdom of God's word, handing that wisdom down such that the baton of faith might be passed down to our children and our children's children. The Israelites were to remember their being freed from their Egyptian bondage, but from the New Covenant perspective, we might note that we are remembering our freedom, our liberty, our redemption from our slavery to sin. We're remembering not the blood of the Passover lamb that marked the doorposts such that the death angel might pass over. We're remembering the blood of the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world, painted over our very soul, that on the day of judgment we are kept safe in the body and behind the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Marital fidelity is central to our ability to pass that baton unhindered. Look now to verse 25. The Bible says here, don't lust in your heart for her beauty, her being a reference to the woman in verse 24, an evil woman with a flattering tongue. Don't lust in your heart for her beauty, let her captivate you with her eyelashes. I don't understand the seduction of the eyelash thing. I don't get this current phenomenon of one-inch eyelashes. I find it terribly distracting and anything but seductive. But in any event, you're not to be smitten with such. Don't lust in your heart, Solomon says, for her beauty. Or let her captivate you with her eyelashes. For a prostitute's fee is only a loaf of bread, but an adulteress goes after a precious life. Solomon is certainly not commending adult, uh, prostitution rather as preferable to adultery. The point here is that prostitution, although a disgraceful act in and of itself, comes at a relatively low price. 
whereas adultery will cost you your life. Verse 27, the Bible says, Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with the one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. These verses speak of the incredible price of adultery. Cost. It is incurred the price that must necessarily be paid when one involves himself in adultery. There is no escaping it. The inevitability of a high price to be paid is cited in verses 27 and 28. Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? The inevitability of consequence is cited there, but the imagery used, if you're looking for an interesting Sunday afternoon investigation in biblical studies, begin to run down in the Old Testament the imagery of verses 27 and 28 and what they typically refer to. Solomon is referencing not only the inevitable consequences of adultery, but the prospect of some physical disease that is picked up through the act of adultery in those verses. The picture is not pretty. What is inescapable is that there are consequences, grave personal consequences that come from adultery, publicly or privately, openly or in secret, spiritually or physically. Adultery always comes at incredible cost. Look at verses 30 and 31. People don't despise the thief if he steals to satisfy himself when he's hungry. Still, if caught, he must pay seven times as much. He must give up all the wealth in his house. I've mentioned a couple of times along the way the complexity of translation of Proverbs. And maybe some of you are reading a translation of verses 30 and 31 that sounds altogether different than what I've just read. Again, people don't despise the thief if he steals satisfy himself when he's hungry, still if caught, he must pay seven times as much. He must give up all the wealth in his house. I can't say with absolute assurance how the verses should be translated, but I do know there are two reasonable options for translation. You could translate the verses one way to say, people do not despise a thief who steals to satisfy his hunger but an adulterer takes what is not his to satisfy a non-essential need. My translation is reflective of that approach. You don't despise a thief because you recognize that in this particular case, without food or drink, he will die. So you may not appreciate thievery, but you acknowledge the difficulty of the circumstance that has given rise to such behavior. There is an alternate approach to translating this verse that says something like this. The thief is despised, even though he steals for food. How much more will the adulterer be despised for taking something that does not belong to him? In either case, regardless of what approach one might take to translating the two verses, the focus here is that adultery is something that results in some degree of public shame or public scorn. People don't despise the thief, however, the adulterer is roundly despised, regardless of how you understand verse 30, whatever approach you take to that passage. 
Now, often in our culture, concern for your personal reputation or character in the public eye can, can lead to conclusions like, well, he's just superficial or he's just self-interested. Like if a person is in trouble and they express any concern whatsoever as to how they'll be regarded, that, that, can, that can sort of create an air of superficiality and a person might say of them, well, their apology is disingenuine. They're just concerned with how people will see them. They're only concerned for themselves. Well, however you view it, a person's reputation can be a powerful, powerful motivator. And we ought to, be, to want to be the kind of people that others would regard well. The focus of these two verses, and I want us to get this because I think this is critical. The focus of these two verses is that there's a certain degree of public scorn that comes with adultery that you ought to be aware of and be on guard against. But Satan, in classic satanic character, has taken this concept, this idea, and, and turned it in the most manipulative of ways and by observation a very crafty and effective way in our Western world culture. I don't have the expectation that there are going to be just gobs and gobs of people who are involved in adultery who are going to come flop down at Longview Point Church on a Sunday morning to be a part of a church service. Usually when a person begins to engage in adultery, they will simultaneous to that begin to withdraw from the gathered body. At least not adultery in the traditional classical sense of the term. But there will be. Make no mistake, there have been already today, and there are at the present moment dozens and dozens of adulterers in the newfangled, more modern, technologically advanced sense of adultery. Men and women seated right in this congregation who are involving themselves in the sin of adultery through the use of the World Wide Web and by virtue of the things they watch on television. Now, here's the way Satan has inverted and twisted and manipulated this passage. You believe that you have subverted the consequence of your sin because you've managed to do what traditionally would have been public now in such secret ways that no one could know. And your interest in preserving your reputation or your character will keep you nailed inside the closet and will handcuff you from the liberty you might otherwise enjoy by the confession of your sin. And I just want to warn you in a couple of different ways. One, that you will not circumvent the judgment of God against the sin of adultery. And that what you may believe in your heart of hearts is your secret and yours alone. The God of heaven, the all-seeing God of heaven is completely away. And I'll add to that with regards to recovery and moving forward in your life. Satan is actively using your secrecy against you. You may need the liberty of sharing that with an accountability partner, with a pastor, with a friend, with a discipleship group leader to truly find the freedom that you have perhaps been fishing for. I, I was, Brandy and I, my wife and I were talking about passages like this a few weeks back when a similar topic came up, and, and we don't, frankly, often talk about the sermon, and she almost never gives any kind of counsel or commentary on the sermon, both of which are probably really good for our marriage, right? 
and I just was expressing to her what I had expressed to you on that particular day, that there are just these passages that just make me sad. Because you see people, you counsel with people, you talk with people, and you want the best for them. And you want them to see that what they're trying to grasp for, they cannot get the way they're trying to get it. And, and I said to her, if, if, if they used to do this, this is what I'm saying. This is the message. This is the message. Do this and your life will be better. If you want to have a better life, if you want to be better fulfilled, better, better satisfied in this area of your life, just do what God's Word says you should do. And a rare word of commentary from my wife, she said, I wish you would just say it like that. And then I had to explain the difference between the way we talk privately and what is acceptable in the pulpit. You cannot say it that way in the pulpit, dear. That won't pass. Of course, she knows that. In any event, you just want, just want folks to see it, right? And just to know that, that what you are grasping to have, God will be pleased to grant, but only in righteous ways, only within the parameters established by His Word. And I'm, I'm just telling you, every time I turn around, I find myself bumping into this issue with someone or some group, or some gathering. There's, there, there are countless ways that the sin of adultery, whether it be the physical act of adultery or more commonly, this involvement with internet and television pornography is destroying people robbing people of the very ability to enjoy the thing that God would be pleased to grant them within righteous parameters. You're just not going to find it in those ways. It doesn't exist out there in that way. You're never going to circumvent or sidestep or shortcut the judgment of God against the sin of adultery. In any event, there is this public scorn that attaches itself. Look to verse 32. One who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Would you just look at that verse? Just read it again with me. The one who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. It is a self-destructive act. Solomon says it's stupid. There are littles in the room. We don't let our little say that word. So if you're a little, don't say what the pastor said. That's really what the text says, right? It is a it is a senseless thing to think that somehow this is going to result in anything other than disaster. More there in just a moment. One who commits adultery lacks sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Verse 33 will get a beating and dishonor. His disgrace will never be removed. The jealousy enrages a husband. He will show no mercy. He takes revenge. He'll not be appeased by anything or persuaded by lavish gifts. Solomon is talking here of the destruction that will come at the hands of a husband should the sanctity of his marriage be violated by an adulterer. Ladies, you, you might be put off by this, but every husband in this room has rehearsed countless times homicidal fantasies of what he would do to any man 
who infringed upon the sanctity of his marriage. In far more graphic detail than you have ever witnessed in a Hollywood motion picture, we think often of the dreadful things we would do to anyone who brought harm to our wife or our children. You might be surprised at just how graphically detailed the images in our imaginations are when it comes to dealing with people who infringe upon the safety and well-being of our wives or our children. Hopefully I'm not the only one who's ever had homicidal fantasies of hurting people who do things to my family. But I really don't think I am. I suspect there are many more like me who've had similar thoughts. You might, you might, you might not be murdered by the man whose wife you involve yourself with, but I wouldn't bet on it. And even in the event that you were able to sidestep the vengeful wrath of a scorned husband, there is no guarantee whatsoever that you'll sidestep the full measure of the punishment that will come against that sin. You don't really even need the wrath of a vengeful husband because written into the constitution of God's creation is the simple fact that you will reap even as you sow. Adultery in and of itself is self-destructive. You don't need someone to pull the trigger, so to speak. You will have done so having turned the gun on yourself should you choose to involve yourself in such an act. To commit adultery is to actively choose one's own destruction, and so you ought to guard yourself against such behavior. I've said in a previous sermon, the thing that's always perplexing to me is not not the decision that's made in the moment that the physical act of adultery happens. It's the thousands of decisions that were made in the build-up to that moment, the conscious decisions, whereby one knew they were inching closer and closer to the fire before they ever got to the flame. The constant quenching of the work of God's Holy Spirit. Be on guard. Be watchful. Be on guard. Be watchful. You ought to put some fences up in your life. Husbands and wives, even single young people planning to be a husband or a wife at some point out there in the future. These kinds of things ought to be a part of the conversation in preparing yourself for marriage. I'll just tell you, my, my position is that a man or a, a married man or woman has no business in isolation or alone with a person of the opposite sex. It's just unnecessary. It just shouldn't happen. It may be in a work situation or maybe some life scenario that I'm unaware of that could be problematic for you that you might be looking for ways to weasel out of. You ought to create some accountability in those areas of your life. Have a conversation with a supervisor or superior to ensure that uncomfortable situations aren't occurring on a regular basis, but you can navigate life without it. I'm a pastor, and I, and I just I feel like, whether this is reality or not, I feel like I've always felt as though the, the, the pastor would be the first one who would be accused of something, so we've tried to put additional fences up in our life personally. I've been a pastor for now nearing 20 years, which is almost unbelievable, but nearing 20 years. And in 20 years of pastoral ministry, I have been alone with three women. My grandmother, my wife, 
and my secretary of 12 years who's older than my mama. You can do life without living in, existing in proximity to people of the opposite sex. It's just altogether unnecessary. We just try as a couple to navigate that as best we possibly can. You can do it. It's interesting to me the extent to which the world mocks and scorns those kinds of measures being taken by men and women now. I I have watched in, in the news cycle recently the way the new Speaker of the House has been mocked and accused because of having Covenant Eyes, which is a software program that is protective against internet pornography on his phone and sharing that information with a 17-year-old son. There is, there is a, a public mocking of any attempt at righteousness whatsoever. Now think of that. We mock and we scorn a man who in the interest of his own moral purity and that of his son would download a software program that he and his son might be simultaneously kept accountable to righteousness before God. But we will parade about and celebrate the most ungodly expressions of sexual immorality known to man and fly flags over all of our state and federal buildings to celebrate moral depravity, the extent to which Gentiles ought not to speak of. I'm just telling you, here's another area of life where we can be separate and distinct from the world around us, pursuing moral purity before the very God of heaven. Guard your heart. Put some fences in place. Protect yourself. Protect yourself. Now, it ought not to be as difficult as what people make it out to be. You know, sometimes, fr- frankly, I'm reading along in, in Proverbs, and I think this is where the metaphor begins to turn. If you, you just read in Proverbs, and it sounds to me like Solomon had a real issue with women approaching him in this seductive kind of way. I don't know about you guys, but I I just really don't struggle with that on an everyday basis. Like, that is not my experience. Like, I don't turn the corner and go, oh, there's a seductress. I need to go in this direction. Like, that, that that is not my experience. And I have a strong suspicion, just looking at this, that is not your problem either, right? Our issue is not someone else. Our issue is us. And so begin to take the measures to guard your heart, to walk worthy of your calling. That is your, that is your, that is your responsibility as an individual to guard and to protect your heart and the sanctity of your marriage. There's a self-destructive component to adultery, and it's sad when you observe people choosing to go the wayward way. And by virtue of taking the bait, being bit by the hook beneath its surface. I I think, I I want to address something about this passage. Because I suspect there are many in this room who have been touched by this particular sin. Can the Lord take a relationship born out of adultery and bring repentance and redemption? In other words, can there be a couple that's begun in adultery, that somewhere down the road God can bring to a place of repentance and redemption and do something great through them? Absolutely, there can be. I I know some. You, in all likelihood, know examples of such. 
you know, couples who came together through adultery and now love Jesus and are walking faithfully with Him, probably so. Are there marriages which survive adultery? Marriages where adultery happens and they're able to press through that? Absolutely. Some of the greatest examples of what Jesus intends marriage to be, at least in my experience, are those who've come through that. You realize that Jesus says in the Gospels, I will never leave you nor forsake you. One of the greatest pictures of grace in all of the Bible is found in the book of Hosea, where Hosea marries a prostitute and she runs away. And God's instruction to Hosea, Hosea, in this living picture, in this living illustration, Hosea is playing the part of God. And God says, Hosea, you go find her and pay her price, buy her back and bring her home. God says, that is the extent to which I love you. And the husband-wife relationship is to be a living, breathing embodiment of the message of the gospel, wherein Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Absolutely, there are couples who come together through adultery, who, who love and walk with Jesus today. That's the work of redemption. Are there marriages which survive adultery? Absolutely, there are. But in general, in that proverbial way which Proverbs speaks, adultery always results in catastrophe. We ought not bank on somehow being a long-term exception to that principle. It is a sad thing when you see people that you love and you care about grasping to have something. And the process of their grasping moving further and further and further away from that which they so desperately want to have. God knows a little something about the way we are made and a little something about what we need the most. And when we walk in His way, according to His Word, in His wisdom, we find what we've been grasping for, looking for, longing to have all the while. In the pursuit of righteousness, we find happiness along the way. But the, the counsel of this world is you just go for happiness, pleasure and satisfaction in the moment, throwing caution to the wind. And what you'll effectively do is rob yourself of the capacity to enjoy what God has prescribed you would have within the bonds of marriage. This, this is what is best for you. To do it God's way. To do it God's way is what is best. And it's good. And it's wonderful, right? It's really good. And it's really wonderful. If you'll simply honor God's command. Someone has said that you don't know how bad you are until you try to do what is right. I suspect there are probably some folks in this room who are wrestling against sin that falls into the very category that we've talked about this morning. And you've wrestled at different times to find some degree of liberty, some degree of freedom. And as you do, you realize how bad you are. But there are certain things that you may not in and of yourself have the capacity to do. The good news of the gospel is that we've not been left to our own devices, but that we, by faith and repentance in Jesus, given the gift of God's Holy Spirit, that we might be empowered in acts of obedience that far exceed our natural ability because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't have to do the things we used to do anymore. 
The message of the Gospel tells us that God has so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that Jesus came from heaven to earth, mild, He lay His glory by. He walked in our midst, fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law. What you and I should have done, Jesus has done in perfection. Jesus died on the cross, not because He was a sinner, but because I'm a sinner. Jesus bore the penalty for my sin on the cross, that on the day of wrath we might find a safe place in the body and behind the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was buried in a borrowed tomb. He rose again on the third day in order that every person who believes in Him could have the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of resurrection living within them, not just the forgiveness of our sin and the promise of eternal life, Holy Spirit empowerment to be holy even as He is holy. Don't you want for that? I, I know, I know that in the world and even among Christians, there can be this idea that being righteous is this puritanical, monkish existence, void of any real delight, you know? Like even among people who read and like we, we tend we tend to evaluate righteousness on the basis of plainness. Like even in the minds of people, my wife reads all these books that are about Amish people. I don't get the fascination, but she reads all the Amish books. And it's like the closer you get to Amish, the more holy and righteous you are. Do Amish people know that we write books about them? I don't know. But that is not the way it works. That is not the way it works. God has made us to enjoy Him, to delight in Him, to find satisfaction and fulfillment in Him. You know what righteousness looks like? It looks like a heart that's busting with joy and gladness. It looks like a body that knows the depths of pleasure God intends for us. It looks like a smiling face. It looks like a rejoicing heart. It looks like unbounded gladness in what Jesus has done for us. And every outlet known to man, absolute satisfaction and fulfillment. That's what the righteousness of God looks like at work within us. And I want you to know that God is not calling us to be Amish. God is not calling us to be monks. God is calling us to enjoy Him and to enjoy marriage and to enjoy what He's made us to be. Delight in that. Come to Him and find forgiveness for your sin and the heights of joy and pleasure and satisfaction that can only be found within the parameters of righteousness established by God in His Word. Let's go to Him in prayer. God grant that we could feel the depth and sense the weight of this and other passages like it. God, help us to hide the principle of Your Word in our heart that we might not sin against You. God, help us to see that joy and gladness, peace and fulfillment are found in Christ and in Christ alone. God, help us to reckon with that reality in every part of our life. God, forgive us when we so foolishly go the way of this world. We allow that we are seduced by the schemes of the devil. God, I, I pray that You would search us over Move our hearts. Stir us to worship. Call unbelievers to faith in Jesus. Sanctify your bride, the church. We ask it in Jesus' name.